Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. We've often said here that when laying out your garden plan, make sure the edible garden is visible from the kitchen window. Well, today we're going to expand on that tip. How about planning your garden so that the most beautiful spots outside are visible from the room inside in which you spend the most time? Think of it as your easy chair garden. Master Gardener Pam Bone has some ideas for you on that. Speaking of edibles, we revisit a chat we had with Master Rosarian Debbie Arrington about the tastiest rose petals, and we will find out what they taste like, too. There's no question that your garden is great therapy for your body, mind, and soul. In fact, therapy gardens play a big part in our society in the rehabilitation, education, and skill learning for those who need it the most. Diane Blazek of the National Garden Bureau talks about what some of those gardens are doing to make this a better place to live. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Labutalon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in just a bit over 30 minutes. Let's go. We've got a quick tip for you. We're at the home of Master Gardener Pam Bone here in the Sacramento area. And what a fabulous view there is from their breakfast nook looking out to their backyard garden. And that's something for you to keep in mind that if you're a gardener, you ought to be able to enjoy it from wherever you are in the house and especially where you spend most of your time. In this case, it's a breakfast nook. But think about that as you go through your house. Where do you spend the time? What window do you look out the most? And then think about how you would design a garden for that area. And Pam, you've lived here for 40 years. Whoa. So, But you've spent some time in designing this backyard. Yes, I did. Um, actually, it'll be 42 years this uh, summer. We uh, moved in and uh, it was a landscape that was pretty bad. And I thought, hmm, I'm a horticulturist, have a degree in horticulture, but I'm not a landscape designer. There is a difference. So I went to a local community college and took a landscape design class and prepared a design for the um property that has held up for almost 42 years. Uh, the basic bones are still there. And one of the things that I designed is something that I could look out the garden and enjoy it. We have a lot of fruit trees in the landscape. And so one of the first things I did is um, it's a southern exposure and we put in an apple tree. A big old Granny Smith apple now uh, graces the area. And from that apple tree, we hang bird feeders and uh, water for the birds. And we attract lots and lots of wildlife, sometimes unwanted wildlife, but the birds are an asset. So we sit at the uh, breakfast uh, table and often eat dinner, lunch here. I'll read the paper here and just enjoy the sights of the landscape of the garden. Uh, we put in a walkway that leads away from this area. So it looks like our eye is traveling out. We have a lot of flowers, like right now the uh, clematis is blooming. And it's just probably one of the, the nicest visual 
parts of our our house uh, and to enjoy. And I think it's extremely important to design, if you're a gardener, if you're a landscaper, something that you can take the inside out and the outside in, and they're compatible. And in fact, uh, we just repainted the inside of the house, and I am mimicking in the inside what's outside. We have a pool off in the distance that's blue, so we've got a, a gray-blue uh, kitchen area, and we have a deck now that's uh, a gray color. So they really flow together. I think landscape design is integral to your inside and outside living both. Obviously, the apple tree is the focal point. As you look out the window, it's planted, what, 10 or 15 feet away from the window. But I've noticed you've pruned it in a way that allows you to see through the tree easily to your garden. Yes. And um, I know that um, when you grow a lot of fruit trees, people will recommend that you keep them very low so that you can pick them. But one of the things that we did in most of our landscape is our fruit trees are our landscape focal points as well. They are a landscape feature. So they may be just a little bit taller. We have to do uh, to get on a ladder to pick the fruit, but that allows a view through. We still get a lot of fruit. Uh, If you notice too, we positioned it slightly off to the side so that we could put the walkway and some flowers and shrubbery and stuff over to the other side. So then you have a view out to the yard into the rest of the landscape and you're not just looking at a big giant tree sitting in front of your uh, window. The pathway itself actually takes your eyes out further into the yard and that's a nice design of a curving pathway. It's a gravel pathway. And you've got all sorts of uh, ground cover plants, low growing plants, and because there is an apple tree, shade loving plants. Definitely. Um, That is the one thing that we do have a lot of shade in the summertime, particularly when the apple tree is in full leaf. And we also have a small Japanese maple that is right next to the house as well that shades. And so you have to keep in mind what grows there. Well, guess what? A lot of ferns grow, a lot of native ferns too. I I do try to incorporate a lot of native plants into the landscape, but I am one of those that advocate uh, putting Mediterranean and native plants together. If you live in our climate, now if you live somewhere else, you can plant natives with whatever else is uh, adapted to that area from other regions of the world. And so, yes, there's quite a bit of shade. Now, one thing that we've done is we've kept the area right under the apple tree free. It's mostly just mulch. And the reason is a lot of the bird seed falls down there. So you'll get weeds and things that come up, but also for picking the apples and for getting the ladder under there and doing your chores. It's um, easier than trying to walk all over plants. What's nice, too, and you mentioned the birds, is you have several bird feeders. I I see two. There's probably more. There's a hummingbird feeder. And there's a lot of uh, interesting, uh, I guess you could call it shabby chic, uh, water features of of, uh, repurposed uh, things. Well, watering cans. I have a thing about watering cans. Once you get out into the landscape, you'll see that uh, we have watering cans all over the place. So I just started hanging in them in the apple tree because the birds actually like to perch on them. And so they they look kind of cool and uh, adds a little bit of a feature uh, to the landscape. And then I will put some hanging plants out there. Uh, unfortunately, I left a few of the house plants when we did the painting job outside, and they didn't really like that cold weather that we had uh, not too long ago. And so they kind of died back. But in the summertime, it's a great place to take and move your house plants out uh, that like to have a little bit of uh, you know fresh air and a little bit more sun. And and usually they are rejuvenated and do really well. So, yes, it's my apple tree is all purpose. And it also is supporting probably the other focal point uh, in the uh, front of the yard here. And that's this uh, rocket shaped 
bird feeder, and you said it's squirrel proof? Well, yes, actually, it is called a squirrel buster. That's a trade name for it. Uh, uh, they, I think, are a, an excellent company, as far as I can see, as because their design is absolutely squirrel proof. We have a lot of native squirrels here, and unfortunately, introduced squirrels as well. And they are always trying to get to the bird feeders, and these they can't. I have two squirrel proof uh, bird feeders, and the squirrel buster is the one that holds the most uh, seed, and they can't crack it, unfortunately, for them. But they then will spend their time on the ground trying to eat all the reservoir of seeds that the uh, birds kick out. One thing you mentioned that we should reinforce if you're a gardener and you want to design a focal point garden to look at while you enjoy the uh, great indoors and looking outside is to maybe take that landscape design course at your local community college. Uh, check out your local community colleges, see if they have a vigorous horticulture department and, and take a landscape design course. Uh, I imagine uh, there are things you learned in that class years and years ago that you still employ. Definitely. One of the things that I learned, the very first thing is that you need a design no matter what. And in our case, we were taking an old landscape. Luckily, it was a an old landscape that really didn't have much in it. And we, we took everything out. Uh, all the trees came out, all the shrubs that were left behind. It was a mess. And so I learned, though, you don't just start going to the nursery and plunking plants in, which people do all the time. Or if they have an already existing landscape, oh, that plant is so gorgeous looking because it's in full bloom at the nursery. And you bring it home and you go, oh, now where do I put it? And late, years later, you find out you've got it in the wrong location. It's too big. It has too much shade, not enough sun or just whatever. And so by having a design, then you know that, okay, I'm going to put in, and this is what we did, the trees first because they take the longest to grow. And I'm going to know that that tree is going to shade this amount of area. Now, I will tell you that over the years, things do change. I had a lot more vegetables. We put in a big vegetable garden in one area, and now um, it's been reduced because there's more shade. We decided we liked fruit trees more than we liked uh, vegetables. And so the vegetable garden is down to those things you can't live without. First of all, all my herbs. And secondly, tomatoes, of course, and a few others. But um, fruit trees really took over. And then berries. We're a big berry family. Uh, my husband's from Oregon. I'm from Washington State. And therefore, you have to have berries. So we've had berries in this landscape since about the year after we moved here. And so uh, you have to think about what it is that you want in your landscape. And if you have a plan, you know where to put it. And then you can do modifications over the years. We've learned a lot today just staring out Pam Bone's breakfast nook window at a beautiful garden. Pam Bone, Master Gardener, thanks. Thank you. You've heard me talk about the benefits of Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric container. Smart Pots are sold around the world and are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Many of the imitators are selling cheaply made fabric pots that fall apart quickly. Not Smart Pots. There are satisfied Smart Pot owners who have been using the same Smart Pots for over a decade, actually approaching 20 years. When you choose Smart Pot fabric containers, you know you'll be having a superior growing experience with the best product on the market. And your plants will appreciate Smart Pots too. Because of the 1 million microscopic holes in Smart Pots, your soil will have better drainage and the roots will be healthier. 
They won't be going round and round on the outside of the soil ball like you see in so many plastic pots. The air pruning qualities of smart pots creates more branching of the roots, filling more of the usable soil in the smart pot. Smart pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com/fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your smart pot order by using the coupon code FRED. Use it at checkout from the smart pot store. Visit smartpots.com slash FRED for more information about the complete line of smart pots, lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer FRED 10% discount. Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. Rose Blooms, they're making their annual springtime debut in our area right now. It's a show coming soon to your area, too. But did you ever wonder what a rose petal tastes like? Well, they are edible. Back in episode 35, we chatted with Master Rosarian Debbie Arrington on that topic, and you know something? She's a big fan of serving up rose petals on a plate at mealtime. And Debbie, uh, you actually have conducted a taste test of various rose petals. Yes, I did. Well, I, I should note that uh, besides other things, I'm president of the Sacramento Rose Society. Um, and so I am surrounded by a lot of rose experts. And we are always looking for new things to do with roses. My rose t taste test came many years ago, back when I was a food editor, and I wrote a story about edible flowers. And so then we did a little taste test of, well, what do flowers taste like and which ones are good and which ones are not. And roses um, are probably one of the most easiest edible flowers that, that are around you. Now, the, the thing about roses is you want to make sure they're not sprayed. Right, uh, because you know you don't want to you don't want to eat anything that you've been using uh, insecticides or or pesticides on or anything like that. But uh, when you think about it, roses are they're from the same family as as a, a lot of fruits. That's why you know you have rose hips on rose bushes. That, you know after the the roses are are developed and mature, that has uh, rose hip jelly and rose hip tea and all sorts of different things with that. But the flowers also are very tasty. And what we found was that the flowers that had the best fragrance, the strongest scent, tended to have the most taste in the petals also. Is that a good thing though? Is it, was it, was it a pleasing good. flavor? It was a pleasing flavor. It was like a slightly sweet cloves. Hmm. The roses have a lot of vitamin C in them. So they have kind of that, oh, that citrusy note that you get from any of your citrus family, where you have that kind of kind of zesty uh, taste on the back of your tongue. You think to yourself like, oh, this is vitamin C. So it's slightly acidic. But, but the main flavor that you're getting out of uh, most roses is sort of like cloves. It's a little s spiciness that you, that you sense on the back of your tongue. What we found also was that the old style roses, like old garden roses, which have a ton of fragrance, they have a lot of flavor also. I also found that the Austin roses, uh, which are big shrub roses and, and also very, very fragrant, they not only have that slightly sweet, spicy uh, cloveness to them, but 
if down in the little petals that are towards the center of the flower, they pick up a little bit of the nectar too. And so they're actually sweet, sweet, like honey sweet. It was interesting. We, the, the ones that we found that had the most flavor tended to be the red colored roses. And the red on them, I think part of that is that those roses tend to have a lot of fragrance also, like uh, your Mr. Lincoln's, you know, and, and other, you know, red roses that, that have that definite, oh, fragrance to them. But the ones that were just like light colored white rose, they tended not to have much taste to them at all. They, they kind of were like crunchy lettuce. So how are they best served? In salad, fresh. They're, they're better when they're younger. Um, if it's already bloomed and on its last legs and beginning to brown and stuff like that, it's over the top and it and it tastes sort of like wilted lettuce. But if the rose is fresh, it has that crispness and it has that kind of slightly sp- spicy taste. It's it's sort of it's sort of like a mild arugula. Mm. It's sort of like in that thing where there's like a little spice and bitterness, but not too bitter. It's more it's kind of um, like a sharpness to it than than bitter. And so a uh, salad, it's definitely a salad ingredient. And they also can be used in tea. You know, you can just go ahead and use the petals and uh, put them in uh, some water and let them steep. Is there any advantage to a single petaled rose versus a, a multi-layered uh, rose flower? The, a lot of the single petaled roses have a lot of fragrance. So they do have pretty good flavor also. You know, you could also use them in uh, to flavor... Oh, uh, sorbet or uh, sugars and candy and things like that, too. So on a I'll call it a complex. You would you being a Rosarian would have the name for a, a, a rose flower that has rose and rose of petals. Uh-huh. Are any of those better than others? The younger ones versus the older ones or the smaller ones? Are they tastier than the larger ones? Oh, you mean the size of the roses of the petals? Well, of the petals, size of the petals. The small petals that are towards the center of the flower, those are the ones that are going to pick up a little bit of the nectar from it. So those tend to have the, the best uh, taste to them. Larger petals on the outside, they've been around longer. So they're like the outer think, – think of it as like a, a head of lettuce. And mm, the yeah. outer leaves of the lettuce, they tend to go limp. You know, and they tend to uh, have the less taste, while the inner leaves of the lettuce there in the heart, they seem to have the best crispness and the best taste. Is there a bitter part to that rose petal, like the point where you yank it away from the flower, that uh, little brace uh, towards the back of the petal? Is that more bitter than the rest of the petal? No. The bitterness that I found with some of them was I, they were just older. They, you know, had had bloom for a while and had gotten a little tired. Since you are a master rosarian, Debbie Arrington, and a mm-hmm. garden writer and a big-time vegetable gardener, defend the use of a rose bush in a food garden. Oh, because, well, a rose bush, it's, it's like a, a big sign to bees and other beneficial insects that come and get it. There's lots of stuff here. So it attracts so beneficials and pollinators. It, it attracts beneficials and pollinators, yeah. And it's pretty. And it's free, yeah. Yeah. And also the rose is a food plant, you know, so why not? You know, the, th- the thing about roses is that you got to think that r- roses are the favorite thing for deers to eat. They, roses are deer candy. Wild roses, you know, out in the forest and stuff, they just go crazy over them. There's a reason why. It's because they taste good, you know, and they, they like them pr- compared to other things. So that's 
one of the reasons why they gravitate towards it. There you go. Roses for your garden. Even if it's a food garden, you're adding another source of food to your uh, backyard cornucopia. Yes. And and if you are seriously looking at the rose plant as a food plant, definitely let your hips develop uh, because the the hips are delicious. Roses are from the same family as plums and peaches and things like that. So the hips kind of taste like a tangy apricot flavor. They they have that sort of uh, brightness to them. And the rose hips have the most flavor of uh, any part of the plant. And so they, they make an excellent tea. They make an excellent jelly. Um, and they're just pretty, too. So I guess the way to develop rose hips is to keep your shears away from the rose bush. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you, you don't really want them to develop hips yet, you know, because they stay blooming as long as you keep uh, trimming off your, your spent blooms. But in the fall you know, starting in October, go ahead and let those uh, spent blooms stay on the plant and mature, and then you'll get your rose hips, and they'll turn a nice orange and red color, and that's when you harvest them. October for California, for the warmer parts of California. For other Mm -hmm. parts of the country, though, when should you stop uh, pruning back your roses to let the hips develop? About the same time, about October. Hmm, Yeah, because because, uh, the, the hips will be ready in about four weeks, so in November, and that'd be fine. There you go. Roses, it's part of your daily diet now. Master Rosarian, garden writer. She is the author of the Sacramento Digs Gardening blog, an excellent garden resource for us here locally. If you live someplace else, check it out. There's a lot of good information in there. Sackdigsgardening.blogspot.com. Debbie Arrington, thanks for eating roses for us. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. If you haven't shopped at your favorite independently owned nursery lately, well, you're missing out. Now arriving are Dave Wilson Nursery's excellent lineup of farmer's market favorites. It's great tasting and healthy fruit and nut varieties. They're already potted up and ready to be planted. We're talking about almonds, blackberries, blueberries, boysenberries, figs, grapes, hops, kiwi, mulberries, olives, pomegranates, and much more. Oh, you want more? Well, here you go. Your favorite Dave Wilson bare root deciduous fruit trees are arriving. Peaches, plums, cherries, including my favorite, the plum apricot cross, the pluot. Wholesale grower Dave Wilson Nursery has probably the best lineup of great tasting fruit and nut trees of any grower in the United States. Find out more at their website, DaveWilson.com. And while you're there, check out all the videos they have on how to plant and grow all their delicious varieties of fruit and nut trees. Plus, at DaveWilson.com, you're going to find the nursery nearest you that carries Dave Wilson's plants. Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com. If you were intrigued by Master Rosarian Debbie Arrington and her suggestions for eating rose petals, you probably heard her mention that the tastiest roses are usually the most fragrant roses. So, what are the most fragrant roses? Well, I might invite you to check out the latest edition of the Garden Basics newsletter, Beyond the Basics. We talk with another Master Rosarian, Charlotte Owendike, who offers up a list of the most fragrant roses. And these are roses that will do well in many parts of the country, uh, probably those parts of the country that don't have a snowblower on standby right now. It's the newsletter that goes beyond the basics. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred Beyond the Basics newsletter. Find it via the link in today's show notes 
or visit our new improved website, gardenbasics.net. There you can find a link to the newsletter in one of the tabs on the top of the page. You can also, at the website, listen to any of our previous editions of the podcast and read an enhanced transcript of the episode that you're now listening to. By the way, if you have gardening friends who may be hard of hearing or avoid podcasts because, well, maybe it's just another headache in the ever-changing world of technology, uh, I get it. Also, many of us prefer to read the information rather than listen to it or watch it. So the transcript of the Garden Basics podcast is for you. It's the Garden Basics transcript available at gardenbasics.net. Check it out. Here in California right now, the roses are starting to put on a show. You know what's nice about gardening, and especially in springtime, you're employing all five of your senses when you're out in the garden. Here in California, you see the roses starting to bloom. If you listen carefully, hey, there's a bee buzzing around the rose. You can, of course, smell that new bloom, that new blossom for 2022. Maybe you have David Austin roses, which are very fragrant. You can feel the rose, too. Have you ever felt a thorn? Yes, I thought you would. And you can also, as we found out from Debbie Arrington just a few minutes ago, you can certainly taste rose petals as well. So it's good for your senses. It's a physical workout. It, it combines weight-bearing and cardiovascular exercise. It's good emotionally because plants don't talk back to you, so you can have a, a joyous time in the garden. It is very good therapy, both for you and your yard, for your family, and for a lot of people who need therapy. We're talking with Diane Blazek. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, it should. We've talked to her in the past about All-America Selections winners. And she has the distinction of being the very first guest on the very first episode of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast back in April of 2020. And uh, Diane, uh, congratulations on all of us making it this far. <laughs> we have. It's been an interesting ride in the last couple of years. Yeah, it has. And it's especially uh, with the COVID outbreak and something like 18 million new gardeners in America. Uh, this is actually, it's a wonderful time for gardening. And I think uh, garden therapy has proven itself over and over again in people's backyards, but also in settings where therapy is really needed. Now, Diane, besides being with the All-America Selections winners, she is also the executive director of the National Garden Bureau. And the National Garden Bureau has uh, combined with American Meadows and Cicada Seed of America Company. They've united to provide $5,000 in grant money for three well-deserving therapeutic gardens in North America. What is a therapeutic garden? Well, Diane Blazek, uh, this is a, a wonderful thing, and, and people don't realize how much gardening is employed in our society for rehabilitation. Oh, absolutely. You know, I I think if my memory and history is correct, after World War II, I mean, you know, everything happened in between the two world wars and a lot of the gardening and hybridizing came out. And especially after World War II, there was um, a big recognition of how 
getting in the garden. I don't think it was quite termed horticulture therapy at the time, but getting out in the gardens. And then it just generally evolved when they saw mentally and physically how good it was for the veterans returning from the war once they were out there working in the gardens. And so it has just continued to evolve and expand to where it is today. And therapeutic gardens are used in a wide variety of settings as well. You mentioned hospitals. I see more and more local hospitals that have gardens to uh, help recovering patients. There are schools with therapy garden for special needs students and just a, a wide variety of entities that are using gardening to help people with occupational, physical, vocational, or rehabilitation therapy. It's all taking place in a garden setting. And this is a wonderful thing that you're doing with American Meadows and Cicada Seed, giving them a little boost. Yes, right. I mean, we couldn't do this without them because they are the ones that are donating $2,500 from each company. And so we combine that. And then we are able to give away these grants. So we give away $3,000 to the top vote getter, which we can explain later. And then we give the other two gardens each $1,000. And then the whole intent is they use it to expand their garden, expand their program, whatever it is that they're doing. We want them to do more of it. And I guess we shouldn't leave out Corona Tools since they're providing uh, quality garden tools to each of the three winning therapeutic gardens. Absolutely. You know, yeah, if you're going to work in a garden, you probably need some tools. And uh, they have wonderful tools that are meant to be used by people with certain disabilities. And this isn't some sort of a pandemic project either. Uh, the National Garden Bureau has been uh, doing this for what, eight years now? Yes, we, we did our first one in 2014. And the first year we did anything with therapeutic gardens um, or horticultural therapy gardens was with a garden here in Chicago where we're located and we did it as a fundraiser and this particular garden was not only a horticulture therapy garden but it was a vocational horticulture therapy garden and they worked with usually young adults maybe right around the time they're 21 they're aging out of the school system and so what they were doing their whole intent was let's get them in the garden, because we know that children and young adults with autism do very well in that setting, let's not only teach them about gardening, but also about holding down a job. How do you ride the bus? How do you clock in? How do you take a break? It was some of these basic things, but it was all happening in the garden. And there's some wonderful stories about the successes of that garden, as well as all the others. You know, we've now helped about 25 different therapeutic gardens. And it's it's a wonderful history that we've made in eight years. Yeah, gardening is just a wonderful learning experience. Uh, one of the winners last year uh, talked about how students learn both gardening and work skills, like learning to be on time for work, remembering their tools, and doing their very best each time that they're working. And a lot of these training sessions could be applied to young families who may have taken up gardening in teaching their children those very same skills. Oh, you're so right. Yeah, there's. it's kind of a gray area, I think, between children's gardens and horticulture therapy gardens. You could certainly say that pretty much all children's gardens are therapeutic gardens because of what they can achieve. 
And then there's other maybe more sophisticated or more severely physically disabled or mentally disabled where those gardens are working on maybe something different rather than just getting the children outside. So there's a huge variety of therapeutic gardens and that's what that's part of what makes this so interesting and fulfilling to work with these different gardens. I would say the majority of gardeners that I've interviewed over the years have always pinpointed a parent, a grandparent, or some other influential adult in their lives who exposed them to the garden and its joys, and it has stuck with them ever since. Yes, I would I would agree with you even more than 100%. <laughs> we actually did a survey one time and we asked, okay, so, you know, how did you get interested in gardening? And I think 99% of them either, more of them said grandparents than parents, but in total, pretty much everybody picks it up by learning from one of their elders. Exactly. And they're going to pass that on to their children or their grandchildren as well. Right. We hope. And so on and so on and so on. Yes. All right. To give people a a better idea of horticultural therapy gardens, talk a little bit about last year's grant recipients. You had three winners from across the country and, and talk a little bit about them and what they do to help people with gardening. Sure. Um, So, yeah, we do. We get these applications in from all over the country, you know, as well as Canada also. One of them, the the main one last year was Inova Mount Vernon Hospital in Alexandria, Virginia. Then we also had a children's garden that was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And then our third one was at the Frailing Houston Arboretum in Morristown, New Jersey. And one of the things we do is we ask on the application, you know, like which segment of the population are you working with? Quite often, a lot of these therapeutic gardens have a slice. Um, You know, one may be, well, we work only with veterans. One may be we work with children with autism, like I mentioned earlier. Another one may, oh, a couple of years ago, we had one that worked with homeless children in Texas because of mentally what happens to these children when they don't have a home. They're living on the street. So this was their way to have a routine, have a place to go. They also were learning how to grow their own food. So that was really wonderful. I mean, there's so many different stories with the different organizations that we're giving grants to that I tell you, I get chills every time I talk about it. More than once I've been giving presentations to the industry and I got teary-eyed and choked up just knowing the impact that these gardens make on the people that are able to participate in it. It's mind-blowing, really. So this first garden that I was talking about with young adults with autism, uh, one of, of the times during that summer that we were working with them, we went down and there was a young man that we were trying to talk to and say, okay, you know, what has working in the garden given you? And he said, I learned how to use my words. And it was only later that I found out when he came to the garden, he was nonverbal. And he actually began to speak and literally was giving garden tours after spending like two or three months there. And it's not just the gardens. It's also the people who are working with these new gardeners, a registered horticulture therapist. And most of these are shoestring operations. And the success of these programs really depend on these individuals being there. 
Yes. Number one, we do require that each garden have a registered horticulture therapist. And it's not trying to say, oh, unless you're a registered horticulture therapist, you don't know what you're doing. Because a lot of people do. But we ran into a few things where it was very obvious that they did not have a horticulture therapist on board. And they were making some mistakes that might have been more harmful than helpful. So we work with the American Horticulture Therapy Association. They help us go through the whole list of applicants and narrow it down to the ones that really are serving a need, doing it properly, and reaching a large population. So yeah, it's the people that are working there, and I'm pretty sure, I'm going to say 100% of the applicants we get do have a big group of volunteers. I think a lot of master gardeners work in these horticulture therapy gardens and other people throughout the community, they just find out about these gardens and they want to help. So yeah, we have to give major kudos out to everybody who's working in the horticulture therapy gardens. There may be some gardeners listening who are doing this volunteering and helping out, but they may want to learn more about becoming a horticultural therapist as far as maybe there are some techniques that uh, you should be employing that you could learn. And you can find out more uh, at the American Horticultural Therapy Association's website, which is AHTA.org, AHTA.org. And they have uh, definitions of uh, what a horticultural therapist is as well. Yeah, and you're right. Um, They will have more information. I've also found that a lot of public gardens, um, like I said, we're here in Chicago and the Chicago Botanic Garden has this great program and a certificate to certify you as a horticulture therapist. To anybody listening, if they have any interest whatsoever, you could probably Google, you can um, look at some of the public gardens in your local area, some of the local colleges. I'm sure that there are a lot of different certificate programs that are being offered. Oh, Diane, you're wonderful. You, you've gone back to my mantra, all gardening is local. Yes, you're right. It, it really is. Yeah. So if there are therapy gardens out there that want more information about the grant money that's available from the National Garden Bureau, American Meadows, Cicada Seed, and of course, Corona Tools, uh, how can they get that info? It's on our website and it's easy to find. So our website is just three letters, N-G-B for National Garden Bureau, Dot org. There's one of the tabs up at the upper right that says Garden Grant. So when you click on one of those buttons, you'll find the application. Click on the second button and it just gives you a little bit more history and profiles of the gardens that we have given these grants to over the few, uh, past few years. Therapeutic gardens, they're a part of our society and there's probably one in your backyard right now as a matter of fact. Diane Blazek is the executive director of the National Garden Bureau. Again, to find out more about the grants available for therapeutic gardens, go to the National Garden Bureau's website, ngb.org. Diane, thanks so much for uh, this therapy session. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's always good to talk about gardening, right? Yes, indeed. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Garden Basics, it's available wherever podcasts are handed out. For more information about the podcast, visit our website, gardenbasics.net. And that's where you can find out about the free Garden Basics newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And thank you so much for listening.